episode eight RV8 podcast. I want to send a quick shout out to the homie Travis Lockhart. You met him in episode two, and he since then has moved to what currently seems to be the greener pastures of Atlanta, Georgia, a place where you can apparently go to a gym, see movies, you can eat on a balcony, a place that isn't being labeled to be the modern-day Chernobyl to the rest of the country, a place where you can legitimately have some, like, allergies and, like, do some shit like sneeze and not have a group of people look at you like you're the outbreak monkey. You know what? I'll digress. Uh, my name is Eli. Let's get started. So, we are at this point not too far away from the election, and in terms of the movie business, nothing has really changed all that much from earlier this year, I guess. I mean, it's a little bit more optimistic that we have theaters that are open outside of L.A. County, but L.A. County is still not open. Probably won't be open until a vaccine is readily being handed out. Don't even get me started about that. It, it's such a triggering thing. You know what I mean? A lot of other things have opened, and I understand the precaution of socially distancing and everything like that, but at some point my hair just got really fucking wild, and I ended up at a barber shop for the first time in a really long time. Nice little place. Off of Olympic and Hoover, I got myself a nice little edge up. You know what I mean? Not for nothing, the place was relatively busy in terms of, you know, the amount of people that were waiting. And all I think there were were five barbers or something like that. And they were just readily taking customers. I would say overall there were about 10 to 12 people inside the shop, socially distanced, of course. I say all this because what I noticed more than anything was that as soon as I walked in the door... There's this big screen TV above all the barbers, and it's showing the first Rocky movie. I know it was the first Rocky movie, but I don't necessarily remember what scene it was on or anything like that. But, you know, the whole time that I was waiting, and then all through the time that I got my hair cut, it was playing. It never changed the channel. And my haircut was over and done. And it was still going on. As one does, I was just going to pay my fee and be on my way. You know what I mean? But I looked at that TV, and it was uh, it was ramping up towards the scene. You know, that scene. The montage scene. The montage scene to, like, end all montage scenes. I figured, you know, it's been a little while since I've seen it. I'll just kick back and enjoy it, and then I'll roll out. You know what I mean? For those of, for those, gosh, for those who really don't remember the scene itself, the best thing about it is the fact that it's like, it's not this super athlete version of Rocky. 
You know what I mean? It's not him going to the next level of super athlete. Like how he looks in the beginning of that sequence is almost like how a normal guy would look given he gets some training under his belt. Like not out of shape, but not really, not really 80s Stallone. You know what I mean? I'm a child of the 80s. And all my images mentally of Stallone of that time were just of a jacked animal. And literally everything he did. I almost have to remember that he looked like a normal meathead in 1976. Oh, and I also didn't notice that that super long run he makes on the pier during the montage was in Chuck Taylor's. Like, he's running that hard for what must be a hundred yards in Converse All-Stars. Yeesh. Also, I'm not too sure I got to tell people this. But the first Rocky movie has the best version of that theme song. I went home and watched that YouTube clip of all the training montages that were in these Rocky movies. And I'll tell you, they started adding a lot of drums and horns and a lot of stuff to this Rocky theme song. And they made it all groovy. And it really fucked up everything for me, you know? Anywho, Rocky runs up the stairs, the sequence is over, and I'm back to reality. And I go to pay my fee, and I look around, and everybody's been watching the sequence. Like, I know that wasn't the case when it started up, but by the time it was over, I could see that that entire barbershop was looking at this training montage. I mean, I'm pretty sure that all of those men, because there were only men in that barbershop, All those dudes have seen that at least once. It's a movie from 1976. Like, activity stopped at that barbershop for a short period of time. Motherfuckers stopped cutting hair. And people stopped caring about getting their hair cut. And they were watching a movie from 1976. It's pretty crazy. It is of my humble opinion that that Rocky montage is one of the most memorable and often copied individual scenes of the 70s, if not film history as a whole. The 70s, by and large, did have its particular classic moments. There was the ending of Chinatown. There was the car chase in the French Connection. There was... The George Patton speech in the very beginning of Patton. There was the Russian roulette scene in The Deer Hunter. Those were really famous. Oh, and, you know, then there was these little things called the Godfather movies. Godfather movies are really important to note. Because there's two extremely famous scenes. One in each of those first two films that have stood the test of time because of the lines that are said in those scenes more than the scenes themselves when you really think about it. I mean, sure, we may know the context over why Michael kissed Fredo and told him that he broke his heart, or why Don Corleone made Jack Waltz that offer that he couldn't refuse. Or do we? Do we know? I mean, there's a good chance. The common movie fan in 2020 
knows the line, but not the scene. Both of the first two Godfather flicks are widely acknowledged as two of the very greatest flicks ever made. But in my opinion, those two movies don't have a scene that resonates as much as the training montage in Rocky. Today, I will be acknowledging the memorable scenes of the past decade, the truly iconic scenes that define the last 10 years of film. Of course, not everything can be to the levels of Rocky, but every decade has had their moments, moments that are instantaneously identifiable, if not time capsule worthy. The 80s had their moments too now. There was that time that Indiana Jones got chased by that boulder in Raiders of the Lost Ark. There was the E.T. bike ride that went into the sky. Uh, Gordon Gecko had that speech in front of the Teldar paper shareholders in Wall Street. The point is, ladies and gentlemen, that greed, for lack of a better word, is good. Greed is right. Greed works. And you had the Daniel LaRusso victory at the All Valley Karate Championships in the Karate Kid which is a lot more iconic than I gave it credit for because they based a whole new goddamn TV show off of it. There's a lot more other stuff. It's just a pretty long list, you know what I mean? The 90s had the little girl in the red dress in Schindler's List, had the alien invasion that blew up the White House in Independence Day. There's that really famous monologue from Alec Baldwin and Glengarry Glen Ross that's a lot more famous than you give it credit for. A... B, C, A, always B, B, C, closing, always be closing, always be closing. There's that Mufasa death in The Lion King. You had one of the biggest twist endings ever in The Usual Suspects. And you had possibly one of the greatest endings to any movie ever, in my humble opinion, and one of my favorite movies of all time called Seven. Put the gun I down. saw you with the box. What was in the box? Because I envy your normal life. Put the gun down, David. It seems that envy is my sin. No, what's in the box? Not till you give me the what's gun. in the fucking box? Give me the gun. He just told you. The 2000s gave us that oh-so-devastating montage in that children's film, Up. There was that, uh, <laughs> that baptism in There Will Be Blood. That was a good one. You had... Three of the greatest one-take scenes in cinematic history. And if you haven't seen them, man, just go on YouTube and spare yourself five minutes a pop. Children of Men, there's the one in Hunger, and then there's the one in Old Boy. Just take some time and watch those. It's really incredible. You had the Joker challenging the bat cycle in the middle of what should be Gotham City, but really is downtown Chicago when you look at it in a dark night. And possibly one of the greatest openings of any film in recent memory, in Inglorious Bastards. You're sheltering enemies of the state, are you not? Yes. You're sheltering them underneath your floorboards, aren't you? Yes. Point out to me the areas where they're hiding. And then we arrive at the 2010s. And I had a pretty long list of the notable scenes of each of the great movies that I could muster to remember. There was just way more than 10. 
And it'd be a real shame if I didn't give them some honorable mentions. So I guess we'll start there. This episode is brought to you by Boss of CMOS, the number one CMOS brand in Washington State. So what are the benefits of Irish CMOS? Often touted as a superfood, proponents of this algae claim it can strengthen immunity, improve digestion, and even produce glowing skin over time. Irish moss alone contains 92 of the 102 minerals that our bodies need in order to thrive. Boss of Sea Moss is a brand that incorporates Irish sea moss into things like face mask gels and bath bombs. They also have lemonades both in the original flavor and a new strawberry lemonade, as well as two original blends that you can put into smoothies of your own. The original 92 mineral formula and the herbal blend with all 102 minerals support black owned businesses. Check out Boss of CMOS at their website, bossofcmos.com. Again, that's Boss of CMOS, S E A M O S S.com. All one word, by the way. 2011, Captain America the First Avenger. A lot of people forget how sad the ending of this movie is. Every single one of these MCU movies ended on an exclamation point. Every single one. But not that first Captain America. Cap waking up to realize that he's 70 years in the future in Times Square is one thing. But he also missed out on a date with Haley Atwell because of circumstances beyond his control. Which would devastate anyone, superhero or no. 2016 was Sully. The final trial sequence of this movie is 20 minutes long, so I can't really call it a scene, but it's more of an, an act, I guess. But everything about it is full-blown, lovable Tom Hanks. If you ever want an example of what movie stars are supposed to be on a movie screen, man, Sully gives you everything. 2015, Steve Jobs. What I just said about Tom Hanks can also be applied to Aaron Sorkin right here. The sequence of events that led to Steve Jobs being dismissed from Apple is all but narrated by a very heated type of Aaron Sorkin argument that you see in all of his works, TV or film. But it's here most explosively. Everything that film geeks and film snobs and screenwriters either, you know, whatever they love or hate about Sorkin is on full fireworks show display here. In my humble opinion, it is as great as Aaron Sorkin dialogue gets. And that's saying a lot considering who we're talking about. Whiplash in 2014. And I, I, I almost wanted to put this scene on here on the top 10, but I didn't. I mean, I understand why we as moviegoers associate the term shocking violence with something that is filled with blood and gore, but sometimes it can be done with just a slap. Like J.K. Simmons has been around for a really long time, man. And aside from anything involving Spider-Man and J. Jonah Jameson, I think the common moviegoer would look at him and think of the shockingly violent scene where he slaps Miles Teller for not being on tempo with his conducting. It's a scene, in fact, that was sh so shocking 
that when I saw it in the theater with an audience, everybody had a collected audible gasp when it happened when I saw this movie. And I saw this movie in theaters three times. It happened every time. 2016 brought you Moonlight. Sometimes you can see the exact moment where somebody wins an Oscar. And in the case of the supporting actor race of 2016, there was no question that the end of the first act of Moonlight, that's when Mahershala Ali became the over-fucking-whelming favorite to win every supporting actor award under the sun. He's only in the first act of this movie, but by the end of that first act comes the conversation at a dinner table with the little boy who is the main character of the movie. It's just so quietly devastating. Like, the little boy hates his mom because she's a drug addict. And by that point in the story, he's pieced together that Mahershala Ali's character, Juan, is the person who's selling her the drugs. Very subtly, this film conveys that Juan loses all the boy's trust, and you can tell his love for the boy in the way he breaks down once he realizes it. Just the close-up they have of him in that moment, that dude was a fucking shoe-in to dominate award season. There are a lot, and I mean a lot more honorable mentions that I can drop, but I only have so much time. I have to get to the 10. Gosh, this was so much harder than I thought it would be. There are a number of things that make up a top 10 list for me. A number of factors, and because of those factors, I will be separating these 10 movies by category, even though they're ranked. The first couple of movies are... The Sentimental Faves. Number 10. In 2018, there was a movie called Vice. And one thing I'll say about movie audiences is that they know what they have while they have it. When true greatness is on the screen, it is instantaneously acknowledged and celebrated. When a guy like Daniel Day-Lewis retires in 2016, his career is celebrated by both his peers and the people who've been fascinated for years with his method acting. I won't go as far as to say that the people are doing Daniel Day-Lewis imitations whenever they try and go method, but, you know, almost every superhero, actor, man or woman, they hit the gym these days and they gain 45 pounds for a role they play maybe once or twice. Like, that's not even the impressive shit anymore. The impressive shit is when you truly shapeshift. The impressive shit is when you lose the weight when you gain the accent, when you shave the head, when you get the tattoo, whatever you need. Nobody in the history of film ever did it the way that Daniel Day-Lewis did it. Except Christian Bale. I know it's really uncool to say that someone who is active right now has eclipsed a predecessor. Especially when that predecessor has the legend that Day-Lewis has. But I will say... That in my humble opinion, Christian Bale, over the past 10 years, has been the absolute best that we have in the game right now. And if somebody were to challenge that, if somebody were to tell me to show them a scene that proves my statement absolutely correct, it would be the final monologue of this film. The monologue in which his character, for the first time, breaks the fourth wall 
and delivers what is undoubtedly the best monologue of the past 10 years. The ending of the movie has Cheney giving an interview with a reporter who asks him if he feels that his actions leading to the Iraq war has been worth the lives that his decisions have cost. We saw 3,000 innocent people burned to death by those monsters, and yet you object when I refuse to kiss those monsters on the cheek and say, pretty please, you answer me this. What terrorist attack would you have let go forward so you wouldn't seem like a mean and nasty fella? Bale gained the weight. He put on all the makeup. He shaved off all the hair. That is not the good looking movie star that we've come to know and love. And I can understand the person that tells me, especially in 2020, that they don't want to sit through a two and a half hour movie about Dick fucking Cheney. I can understand that a lot of people will possibly be negatively affected by watching a movie about that motherfucker. But this is Christian Bale at his peak. It's as good as that dude has ever been. And that's saying a lot. Oh, and he lost the Oscar. He lost the fucking Oscar. I mean, what the fuck? Like, I didn't dislike Remy Malik and Bohemian Rhapsody. I mean, he was good, right? But it, it, it's just a wig. And he lip synced. You know what? Actually, let's just move on. I'm not trying to get angrier today. Number nine. Gone Girl. Came out in 2014. There's very few cases in which a movie pulls a bait and switch on its audience and has it turn out to be good. Most often a bait and switch is falsely advertising what the audience is about to see. Depending on the degree of that bait and switch, it can really ruin your film. Okay, example, Crimson Peak came out in 2015, right? It advertised itself as a gothic Guillermo del Toro horror film when really it was a gothic romance film in the vein of a period piece. And it had a gothic background and it had all the stuff that makes Guillermo del Toro horror films good, but it wasn't. And it didn't matter how good the movie itself was because it was falsely advertised. Sometimes the bait and switch though is good. Split came out a year after Crimson Peak and it turned out to be a sequel to Unbreakable, but it didn't hint at that throughout the whole film or the advertisements but it did in an Easter egg at the end of the credits. And that turned out to be the right way to do it. Well done. Sometimes though, and I mean just sometimes, a bait and switch can be fucking legendary and it rarely, rarely happens. In fact, I can only think of two legendary bait and switch moments really of the past 30 years, two legendary ones. The Tyler Durden reveal and Fight Club and the ending of The Usual Suspects. That's the same decade. Nothing in the 2000s, nothing equals bait and switch tactics like those to that kind of success. In my opinion, Gone Girl comes close to that. The full rundown is this, okay? Amy and Nick are a happy New York couple who lose their jobs because of the recession Nick pretty much makes her move to his home state of Missouri. Once they get to Missouri, Nick starts cheating with a student of his 
infuriating Amy because she moved to Missouri when she didn't have to because she wanted to save what was left of their marriage. That's the rundown. And to run down the plot is necessary because Amy's confession, I would say at the start of the third act of this movie, her confession to frame her husband for murder is a very epic bait and switch that to experience for the first time is quite mind-blowing. To fake a convincing murderer, you have to have discipline. You befriend a local idiot, harvest the details of her humdrum life, and cram her with stories about your husband's violent temper. Secretly create some money troubles, credit cards, perhaps online gambling. Purchase getaway car, Craigslist, generic, cheap, pay cash. Invite pregnant idiot into your home and ply her with lemonade. Steal pregnant idiot's urine. Voila. A pregnancy is now part of your legal medical record. Happy anniversary. This movie advertised itself about the investigation into a possible murder, but the bait and switch in Gone Girl turns the whole movie into a flat-out revenge film, and it is masterfully done. Number eight. In 2012, a movie came out called Flight. And to anybody who really knows me, I mean, hell, anybody who's known me for a couple of days will know that one of my heroes, one of my main artistic inspirations is a man named Denzel Washington. He is as close to being a actual black sovereign as there can possibly be. I've seen every one of his movies at least twice since I was old enough to go and see them in theaters. My fandom runs super deep on this man. And no, I haven't liked every movie that he's done. I'm not crazy and, you know, illogical. But the great thing about every seriously great movie star, they themselves give you everything. For a very long time, Denzel was a towering presence larger than life. He still is, actually. I correct myself on that statement. He is subhuman in his regal demeanor. Being as much a fan as I am, I have not seen his movie star exterior dressed down to such an extent as it was in flight. In that movie, he is a binge-drinking alcoholic who saves a plane from crashing while totally shit-faced. And on coke. This movie is most noted for the confession that was in front of the hearing in front of the National Transportation Safety Board at the end of the movie. I've seen that clipped a bunch of times. And then there's the sequence of the actual, you know, flight crashing, going upside down. That was in the trailer. I choose not to highlight any of those scenes on this list because while those scenes are excellent, I would go as far as to say that to anybody who really loves this movie or anybody who's seen this movie more than one time, they know the truly epic scene occurs just before the third act of the film. The buildup is that Denzel's character, Whip Whitaker, will go to jail if he's found to have been drinking while flying the plane. The hearing is coming up, and his legal team has to protect their client by locking him away in a guarded, mini-bar-free hotel room. The problem is that the connecting room to his has an adjacent door that is left open for some reason, 
and in that room there is a mini bar and alcoholic whip gets shitty faced the scene that follows is so legendary the day of the hearing itself they find him unconscious in a bathroom barely responsive what time is it we got 45 minutes okay well how much grace you think we got grace Alan Block, we're gonna get some fucking grace? Well, we, we probably got an hour before we really gotta get him downstairs. Okay, great, well, let's just get a wheelchair and wheel his ass into the hearing. And then out of left field, here comes John Goodman, rocking a ponytail, carrying a leather case, Sympathy of the Devil by the Stones is playing in the background, and John Goodman marches into a room, Whip is drunk off of his ass, and his legal team are all in a frenzied panic. John Goodman's character lays down the law because he knows what needs to come next. We got to sober this man the fuck on up. All right, gentlemen. I need that table cleared, placed in front of Whip with a chair behind it. Now, please. I need a glass of water. I need a credit card. I need a $100 bill. I, I got a 20. She'll do. What happens next, basically, is that Denzel's character takes cocaine to give his body enough energy to go through with the hearing. He's immediately lifted from his drunken haze because of the cocaine, and henceforth, he's back and better than ever. Ah. Thank you, brother. <laughs> shit, I'm back. All right, baby. <laughs> Love you. Love ah. you. Shit. All right. <laughs> And look, I'm not a casual drug user, man. Because I'm not a casual drug user, I spent some time trying to research the accuracy of this scene. And I quickly realized the best way to sum up the accuracy of any drug taking scenes in any movies is simply to go to the lowest form of communication on the entire Internet. The place where a large percent of true fuckery lies and is regularly discussed and that is the youtube comment section yep 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 if you already look up this clip on youtube as i did you will find a large and i mean a large number of comments from people who partake in these kind of activities giving kudos to the accuracy of this scene this scene ends with him fully you know quote unquote recovered and what do you know? For the first time in this movie, the whole movie, two hours and some odd minutes into it, he's Denzel Washington again. All the swag, all the magnetism, that black sovereign is on your screen. Well done. Number seven. In 2010, a movie came out called The Social Network. It's kind of funny to think that one of the four or five best movies of the entire decade was at the very beginning of the decade, and it was only surpassed by a few other films. Everybody knew The Social Network was a classic the instant it dropped, and to this day it remains on David Fincher's Mount Rushmore of films. I'm leaving it in this category on this list because David Fincher is one of my favorite directors and Aaron Sorkin is my favorite screenwriter. And to me, the perfect blend of both of their stylings culminates in one particular scene. And it's not that opening breakup scene. 
I hear so much about how great that scene is, and I just don't, I don't understand. Like, not to say that the scene is trash, but the back and forth between Rooney Mara and Jesse Eisenberg isn't something that I hadn't seen in multiple episodes of The West Wing or The Newsroom or anything else. It's an Aaron Sorkin scene. It's not a David Fincher scene. But I digress. The scene that I'm talking about is the complete ambush of Eduardo Severin. And I'll bet what you hated the most is that they identified me as a co-founder of Facebook, which I am. You better lawyer up, asshole, because I'm not coming back for 30%. I'm coming back for everything. The setup is that Sean Parker, played by Timberlake, and Eduardo Severin, played by Andrew Garfield, don't get along. And Parker's been making business decisions on behalf of Facebook, so... Severin freezes the accounts and it enrages everybody, including Mark Zuckerberg, played by Jesse Eisenberg. Zuckerberg tells him that there's an angel investor that will give him half a million dollars and that makes Eduardo stand down, which leads to him being led to the Facebook headquarters to be told to his face by, I guess, the whole company, it seemed in that scene, that his share of Facebook has been dramatically, if not entirely, diminished. Now granted, that doesn't sound like much, right? To just hear that description. But when you combine David Fincher with Aaron Sorkin and that world-class score by Trent Reznor and Atticus Ross, it can be damn near Shakespearean. What was Mr. Zuckerberg's ownership share diluted down to? It wasn't. What was Mr. Moskowitz's ownership share diluted down to? It wasn't. What was Sean Parker's ownership share diluted down to? It wasn't. What was Peter Thiel's ownership share diluted down to? It wasn't. And what was your ownership share diluted down to? 0.03%. I'm going to be honest with you. I didn't like Andrew Garfield at all. When Hacksaw Ridge came out, I started to soften up my stance on him. But sometimes you, sometimes we as movie fans just don't like a dude for reasons that are kind of unexplainable. Somebody's presence on screen just irks you to the point where you see him and you roll your eyes and you just don't want to watch that motherfucker for two hours. That was Garfield for me, but not here. In this scene, he is an absolute fucking star. This movie is so good to have a scene like this stand out because it just means that a perfect storm of things are happening all at once. All these really awesome Fincher and Sorkin things. I've often said that if I were to meet Andrew Garfield, I would apologize for all the slander <laughs> that he did not know I spoke of him. There was years of it. I said a lot of really harsh things to a lot of fellow movie fans. I like to call this next section... Perfect movie scenes. Again, I am one man with a humble opinion. I feel the need to reiterate that because to me, and perhaps only to me, the following scenes are perfectly executed in every way. Number six, Interstellar. This movie came out in 2014. And I do believe that sometime in the near future, we will look back on this decade 
and we'll realize that Interstellar was the masterpiece that nobody really acknowledged. It is important to say that Christopher Nolan over the past 10 years has proven to be the heir apparent to Spielberg in terms of like the grandiose filmmaking. Memento dealt with telling a story backwards, quite literally, which really hadn't been done up until that point. Inception dealt with layering dreams upon reality. This movie, Tenet, that I have not seen yet, unfortunately, seems to be dealing with the concept of time travel. And in the Batman movies, they really tried to give a sense of reality to that particular superhero, which doesn't sound complicated, but yeah, really was. All of his films are really complicated and they have a lot of stuff to digest, but it goes down easy, which makes him the man. And I think the sole reason for why Interstellar has been overlooked in terms of its quality is just how complicated a movie it is. It's even more complicated than the things that I've tried to explain. It is all at once a movie about finding a new habitat for humans to live in, broken families, post-truth societies, and most importantly, at least to me, something called gravitational time dilation. I might not even be saying that right, but bear with me as I try to explain this as simplistically as I possibly can. Gravitational time dilation essentially means that the closer you are to a source of gravity, the slower time goes for you than everyone else. That's what it means. Scientifically, I mean, that's as good as I can <laughs> that's as good as I can explain it. It's a wild concept for this film that is a very, very real thing. It's time. The gravity on that planet will slow our clock compared to Earth's drastically. Oh, I bet. Well, every hour we spend on that planet will be seven years back on Earth. That's relativity, folks. And in this movie, our heroes are sent to an ocean-type planet near a massive black hole. And they're there to investigate wreckage of a ship to an astronaut that they're trying to find to help save the planet. Layers upon layers, man. If you watch that scene, you'll notice that the robot on this ocean planet, once he goes off of the ship, he starts making these ticking noises for every second that passes. And because they're near such a massive gravitational pull, those ticking noises represent 17 hours on Earth. Every tick, every single second. A tidal wave comes on this ocean planet and disrupts that mission for two whole fucking hours in their time. And because of gravitational time dilation, by the time they simply get back to the ship that they came to the planet with, 23 fucking Earth years have passed. And Matthew McConaughey's character has to sit and watch a video that chronicles his children growing the fuck up into full-blown adults, and all he can do is cry. Fuck. It may be the saddest scene I've ever seen in a movie. At least I think it is. But circumstances in which the scene itself happens, I mean, it deeply disturbs me. Like, 
I think I'm sad, but I'm too disturbed to be sad. You know what I mean? I go through a gauntlet of emotion when I see this movie, and in particularly that scene. I guess that'll do it for right now. Uh, I'll come back with the top five. I do want to send a shout out to Third Wheel Podcast Studio for having me here. I do want these things to be a particular length, if I haven't mentioned it before. Uh, the more you go on for something like this, the more you find your stride, and I, I do think I'm finding it finally. So thank you to everybody who continues to feed my ego with the the possibility that I can continue to do this. This is a hobby that I hope turns into something else, but for now, we're working on it, man. Thank you for listening. Thank you for giving this a chance, and you've made it to the next episode. <laughs>